Welcome to Between Two Chairs, Demystifying Commercial Real Estate, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and trends on the South Florida commercial real estate market with your hosts, Fernando Arencibia Jr. and Jennifer Wolman. In each episode, we dive into the world of commercial real estate and break down complex concepts to make them accessible for everyone. Whether you're a real estate professional, a curious investor, or just interested in the South Florida market in general, Between Two Chairs is the podcast for you. So pull up a chair and join us. everybody and welcome back to Between Two Chairs, Demystifying Commercial Real Estate. I'm here with Fernando Arancibia, my wonderful host, and he's going to talk a lot today <laughs> because today's episode is going to be over two conferences that we attended recently. The first one is going to be the C5 NAR and CCIM conference that was in Atlanta. I know it was back in August, but we haven't debriefed since you came back. And our goal when we go to these conferences is to come back with three takeaways. They can be ideas that we want to implement in our business, information we want to share, anything, but three actionable takeaways in addition, obviously, to all of the networking. So this was the first time that the C5 wasn't held in New York. And I understand from you that it was the best one yet. These conferences tend to get better and better over time. And next year is going to be even greater because it's going to be here at the Hard Rock in Hollywood, Florida. But what were your three biggest takeaways from this conference? So as you mentioned, you know, C5 is, this is the third iteration of this conference. The C5 stands, the 5C stand for Capital Connect, Commerce, Community, and Commercial. And what made it really special this year, I thought, was the combination of bringing in a partner like CCIM Institute. And so from this year and for hopefully for <laughs> forevermore, it will be the C5 CCIM Global Summit. You know, as always, it was just great energy in the room, a lot of, of very impactful presentations. And what I would say in regards to the way that this was curated, for lack of a better term, Term is that number one, in a lot of ways, Atlanta was a uh, part of the amenities of this conference. And by the way, I just wanted to correct you the conference was at the end of September, oh, not August. So we're not that's that, right. we're not, we're that not far. that far You're right. removed. Atlanta was definitely the amenity, and there were on the first day a couple of tours to um, this Microsoft campus. And I heard from people that attended the tours that it was a great wonderful experience and then CCIM had a couple classes on the first day the first takeaway for me was our keynote speaker so on on the official first day of the you know of of the conference the first general session we had the NBA legend uh, Hall of Famer David Robinson and one of the things that I found really impactful here is and, and I told you because I was raving about mm -hmm. it when I came back is if you ever have an opportunity to listen to David Robinson speak or be on a panel or any Q&A. In this case, it was Q&A with NAR President Tracy Casper, who did a wonderful job asking the questions. You will be hard-pressed to find a more genuine human being. He has mastered the task of being comfortable in your own skin. But one of the biggest lessons is that here's a, here's a person who was in the Navy, right? His family are all 
from the Navy. So he's got that discipline and he's got that uh, that approach to everything that he does. Uh, and then, of course, he goes on to have an NBA Hall of Fame career, a world champion, and then has a, another career, which is in commercial investments. And there's a lot of philanthropic venues that he does, including in the world of education. But one of the lessons, and I think, you know, I would love your opinion on this, is that he speaks about the first time that he lost money for his investors and that everything that he had done up to then, it was only his money that he was risking. But he spoke about the awesome responsibility of jumping into a bad deal when you have other people that have trusted you with their money. And what he learned from that experience is that he was outsourcing a lot of the research, a lot of the approach to other people. And he realized that he needed to take reins of how things were taken care of, the process, the procedures, the people involved, everything about it. And what it got me thinking, Jennifer, was this idea that we throw out this word of being a passive investor, right? That there are so many venues to be a passive investor. But I think that that is a misnomer. I think a lot of people think that that means you sit back and you just passively collect. But I believe that, you know, part of the lesson that he was invoking, and he didn't mention it in this exact way, is that you cannot be a passive investor when it comes to having a point of view about what you're investing in, why you're investing in it, and in your perspective, how you can be successful in that investment. And so you can't be passive about why you're investing in the product and what you're doing. And I think that that is the, one of the things that, that he conveyed during his keynote. So I think that's a great point. I agree with you 100%. Passive basically to me just means you're not in the day-to-day -day management of the asset, right. right? But I love it when they say, oh, multifamily is a passive investment. Well, not if you're the GP or the property manager overseeing the million calls you get for stop, you know, stopped up toilets and the locks not working, et cetera. So I agree with you there. And the part about the having a clear investment strategy, we've discussed this in a, in a previous episode. And as you're describing this, all I could think of is the question when you ask somebody who calls and says, hey, I'm looking for a property, I'm looking for an investment property, or I'm looking for a warehouse, or I'm looking for this, and you say, okay, specifically, what are you looking for? Oh, I'm looking for a warehouse that's a good deal anywhere in Florida, or anywhere in the United States. It's like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> like, right. So then, then our job becomes asking the questions to make sure that this person has at least in their mind so yeah. that we can work with a really well-defined investment strategy that's right because if it's just oh find me something anywhere any asset class anywhere as long as it's a nine cap like how, how do you even start with that right, right. so i think that's a, a really valid yeah. point and to your point even if you are a limited partner on a syndicated deal which is about as, quote, passive as you right. can get, you still have to do your due diligence to determine whether or not you right. want to get into the deal. Like, I have certain criteria for my investments. And right. even though I have been approached by some people who I can't wait to get into a deal with them because I love working with them. I think they're wicked smart. They're super, super successful. Yeah. Not them, but they're, whatever investment they're pulling out, whatever 
they're they're putting together yeah. doesn't meet my criteria. Correct. Right. So then I'm like, oh, no, keep sending them my way. I swear I'm going to you know work with you one day, but this doesn't meet my criteria. Yeah. So I think to your point, even if you are a limited partner and looking for yeah. passive investment where you basically once you pick the you know pick the deal that you want to get into and agree to sign in that you you know you've done your due diligence yeah. before and then you still need to check up right because you still need to see is my investment is my asset performing yeah. the way that the gp had described it and if not what can i find like what's going on in the economy or what's going on locally or nationally that would change those and if there if i can't pinpoint anything then it might be time to have i know all my gp friends are going to hate this but <laughs> it might be time to have a call with the gp like if if they don't do a good job most gps do a really good job of sending out at least quarterly quarterly letters <laughs> i don't know why that one was a tongue yeah. for me today but quarterly updates stating, look, this is what the asset's doing. This is these are the issues we ran into. This is why we're above or below what we were expecting. And they do a good job. If they do that, leave leave them alone. Yeah. But if they don't do that, that's when you need to have the phone call and, and say, hey, you know, what's exactly. just curious. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing that was really interesting is, of course, we had this great panel with um, Lawrence Yoon, chief economist for the National Association of Realtors. And he had two other um, economists there. And there was a lot of conversation at the time. So imagine we were there the last week of September and we were right up against the deadline of the government shutdown because the debt ceiling was not going to be raised. So everybody was concerned about, is the TSA gonna be working? Are we gonna be able to leave Atlanta? Do we have to rent a car? That was part of the dynamic of the conversation. And imagine three economists on stage, that was part of the conversation as well. One of the little tidbits out of that and this comes from the chief economist for moody's analytics and one of the things that he mentioned was this um k-shaped recovery when it comes to office and so he says that office will be bifurcated a and b quality buildings class a and class b are going to do well and then everything that is c or below is going to struggle so the reconfiguration of the move back to the office it's more of a you know a, a move to quality and um, the other buildings are going to have to get either repurposed or they're going to have to upgrade or there's going to be some some amenities that are going to attract the people back. I think there was a general consensus that we're going to have some form of a hybrid, you know, uh, office, you know, moving forward. There was a really cool presentation by Bobby Flash uh, Durembos. She is a fighter pilot. There was this presentation about a fighter pilot secret to business success. What I loved about it is that it was interactive. She brought an entire team and they would play these black box recordings they would go through these recreations of what what happened and the biggest lesson there was that sometimes there was a really uh, terrible accident that really occurred because people were focusing on a small little thing and getting away from the bigger picture there was this idea of sometimes you could be so hyper focused on one little problem that you not only ignore others but you create other problems so i thought that that was a good a good lesson and and if i may i'm going to finish with you know i think the person that you missed out on the most yes. uh it was chris voss the yes. master and negotiator of the fbi 
Yes, I've taken his master class, read his book a million times. I love him. Absolutely. And, uh, Watched every YouTube ever done. No doubt. And really a wonderful, wonderful presentation. He runs a company called Black Swan Limited, which... I even like the name of his company. I mean, like I am... I'm. You're a fan girl. You're a fan girl for sure. And if you haven't read his book, his book has never split the difference. And it's it's an amazing read. Uh, or if you're not a book person, it's an amazing... Uh, uh, listen as well. He does have a great voice. I believe he narrates he his own book and he, it's yeah. not a monotonous voice. It's so soothing. And that's yeah. one of the things that he says <laughs> when you're negotiating yeah. with your voice tone. The, the presentation was full of humor, but a lot of it uh, had to do with the number one thing in negotiating is empathy. Mm-hmm. And in what he was saying is that people misconstrue what that means. But what he says is that it's not about what is, what the thing is to you, whatever you're analyzing, it is what it is to them. He says that when you're an FBI negotiator and you're speaking to a family who just went through one of the most horrific, they're going through one of the most horrific experiences of their lives, you got seven to 10 seconds to establish trust and credibility. And he says, you know, that's very different than than confidence, you know, trust and credibility is something where it comes from 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 years of, of what you're practicing, but the moment you make it about yourself, then you lose that ability to convey that in that seven to 10 seconds. Overall, it was an amazing experience. Is there is there something that you remember from 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 Chris Voss that, that you always keep in mind when you're... So I do remember the empathy that he says it works both ways, right? Like he always says, if he gets asked a question that he knows he can't fulfill, yeah, he, his answer is always, okay, now how, how, how do you expect me to do that, right? So I love that, like, okay, how, how is that yeah. supposed to work? So I liked that, I, I really remember that. I remember his midnight radio host voice. Because <laughs> um, especially in negotiations, things can get heated. And oh my gosh, I can't imagine being an FBI negotiator and having that stress. I mean, somebody's life is literally in your hands and in your brain and yeah. in your heart. And by the way, because some people might think, well, we're, you know, what's his voice have to do with it? If you look at his masterclass, the intonation of the voice Voice is a tool Correct. very much in negotiations and, and people sort of undermine right. a little bit of that but that right. there he is power there speak in a midnight yeah. radio host voice but right. he says during certain times when things are getting heated that's kind of a way to calm the situation right. down and yeah. and take any um, it's very neutral and soothing. Um, so I remembered that. I mean, obviously, he says, like, never split the difference going back and forth on negotiations and meeting halfway, um, which is interesting because a lot of times that's what, you know, people in real estate tend to do. Oh, let's just split the difference. Well, according to Chris, that's a big no-no. <laughs> but what I find interesting, I, I, I wrote some notes because I did not go to this conference, um, and I wrote some notes, and it was interesting because both David Robinson and Bobby Dorenboss talked about learning from failure, right? And both David Robinson and Chris Voss talked about the importance of being genuine. So for him, I think when when you say seven seconds, seven to 10 seconds to establish trust and credibility, the only way to really do that is to be genuine. And he's probably genuinely empathetic. Right. With the situation, with the person. Like, I remember in the book, to your point, I remember him stating that 
he was he would empathize with yeah. the bank robbers. Right. Right. He'd be like, wow, I imagine it's pretty stressful right now. This probably isn't going the way you imagined. Like, right. you know, so he's like, <laughs> and the guy's right. probably sitting in there going, of yeah. course, it's not going the way I imagined, you right. know. So anyway, so but I think that the only way for him to be that, to establish yeah. that is because he can picture the other side. Yeah. He is empathetic. I'll tell this quick story because I think people will, will enjoy it because I really enjoyed it. But, you know, he says that trust and credibility, credibility is very different than confidence. Right. And some people confuse it. Some people just want to act like like I know what I'm doing and all this stuff. So he says like, you know, and he, he tells a story about whether you want a, a confident plumber or you want a, a credible plumber. <laughs> you know, and when things are going bad, yeah, yeah you don't want a confident plumber. You want a credible plumber, you know? Uh, you don't want the guys like, I'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. I got this, you know? <laughs> so he's telling the story. You know, he gets called because there is a young boy that is kidnapped in, in Haiti. Of Haitian, Haitian parents, the young boy was, was an American. He was born in America. So they call the FBI. You know, this is happening on a Tuesday. And the father calls the American embassy and say, my, my son has been kidnapped. And so the American embassy says the FBI will, will be contacting you. And he says, people, what do you, when you hear that, what do you think? You're thinking like there's three guys, you know, and he puts a picture of the men in black. Yeah, like the say, movie, yeah, he goes yeah, like yeah. showing up at the door, mm -hmm. like, don't worry, sir, we got you, you know, putting a bunch of equipment around, you know. And instead, all he's going to get is a call from me. And he says, I got that seven and 10 seconds, you know, this and that and whatever. In that seven to seven, 10 seconds, basically what he says, uh, sir, my name is Chris Voss. I'm an FBI investigator. Your son will not be harmed. Kidnappers love to party. They want to get paid right before the weekend, mm -hmm. right? If you do everything I say, mm -hmm. you will have your son by Saturday morning. So he's conveyed. He sets the expectation. He sets the expectation. He's yeah. conveyed like, I know what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. I know exactly what's, what's happening here. And to his credit. The son was returned Saturday morning. Right. He's not only putting themselves in the shoes. He's he's looking at kidnapping as a business. So he's looking like there's a product, there's a bag man, mm -hmm. there's the person who's going to make the call, there's the person who's got who has to pick up the product, the person who has to deliver the product. Mm -hmm. So even though we're talking about the human being as a product, he he is looking at it from exactly their perspective. So he's able to get in there and really be effective in negotiating the release right. of of the boy you know so in real estate it's similar maybe not as high stakes right but right. we are talking about a lot of yeah. money i like how you said maybe not as high stakes maybe <laughs> not as high stakes as a human life but i mean there's a lot of money on the yeah. line either way right oh my god so well, i was trying to do a lead-in to get you back into yeah. real estate mode I know, I know, I and i get it and i know we're in a commercial real estate podcast but you know not a lot of people get a chance to go and see these presentations so i wanted to share because you know there might be a lesson in it for you. For that, sure. Right? Well, I, yeah. That's what I was thinking. I mean, I, I literally was thinking, okay, so because when, I mean, obviously when I read his book the first time, right. I was thinking about it as negotiating real estate. I'm not planning on going to work for the FBI in their kidnapping <laughs> division anytime soon. And the second time I read it was because I did get so much out of his stories of how he negotiated for something as high risk as a human life. And being able to bring it down to, okay, how would that apply to real estate? So what you were just saying about yeah. who he empathizes with, there's, there's so many different roles in negotiating on a commercial real estate deal, right? Whether it's a lease or a purchase or a sale, right? right. You've got all the different 
players involved. Anyway, if you get a chance to read his book, read his book. We obviously are big fans and there is a lot of really good information in there that applies to negotiating real estate transactions. Um, and then in terms of credibility and confident people, which are both, I've got to move on to the yeah. Miami Realtors Commercial Conference. Uh, may I suggest to research Pond City Market in Atlanta? This was, I was very impressed with the project. That's this P-O-N-C-E. Correct. Right. Pond City Market. Right. It was a Sears and Roebuck in 1926. Then it became a city hall and then it was abandoned. And then eventually the city in 2011 sold it for like $27 million. And this group comes in and they invest $180 million in adapting and, and repurposing every single bit of it. And you know, it opened first in 2014, so it's coming into its 10-year anniversary next year. And so I, I do want to say that if you want a case study on a, a great adaptive reuse project, it's it's a very fun place to go and, and spend time. You know, it has everything you could ask for. So, so even if you're not doing a repurposing yeah, redevelopment, right. go visit and have fun if go you happen to be fun. in Atlanta. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the Miami Commercial Conference. So the Miami Commercial Conference was packed full of local and national stars that we love. And I was going to do a massive name drop, but I figured that would take up most of our time. So instead, we'll list them and the schedule of speakers in our show notes. Sure. But just curious what you what you got out of it, yeah. what your takeaways are. I mean, especially for us, right? We're attending. We're local agents, right. we're local brokers, we're local investors, and we're yeah. attending a local conference, you kind of probably wonder how much are you going to really get out of it. But I got a lot out of it. A huge amount. And I want to hear your take. But I will say this. This is a conference that the Miami Association of Realtors, namely the Miami Commercial Board, has been putting together for years. It has grown incredibly. The quality of the speakers has every year gotten better. And the amount of attendees to the point that okay. we've had to change venues twice uh, in order to accommodate. We had 400 people at this co local conference. I just love the diversity and the quality of, of the speakers that are around. And what I would say is that if I'm investing in commercial real estate, and this is, if I am a commercial investor, I wouldn't miss the mid-year conference that happens around May of every year. And I certainly would not miss the commercial conference every year because again, the information is hyper-local, but we also have, in, you know, national uh, speakers that come in and, right. you know. We usually start with a national overview and then this year, it was Lonnie Hendry with yeah. Trap Inc., who's amazing, and they have a great, great podcast, The Trap Wire. Yeah. But um, so and he, I know you're going to tag him. So Lonnie, I know yeah. you, you, you told me you wanted t-shirts. To Lonnie, t-shirts. We're expecting <laughs> t-shirts. We are expecting t-shirts. Plus, you know, I know, I know you want to uh, join us in this podcast. So you know that the invitation is coming. Yeah, exactly. We're going to interview you. I'm sure that's what you want. Another podcast to do. <laughs> right. But um, so Lon Lonnie comes in and he gives a big overview of what's going on on a national scale in the different asset classes. And then he, you know, broke it down to the local level. And just to tie it in with what you were saying about the K-shaped office market, one of my takeaways was from Lonnie's presentation. And he was talking about office properties. And the reason I'm trying not to beat this horse to death with the office and office and office is because we've often said that we're not seeing the same things in Miami that we're seeing on a national scale. 
For sure. But we should always put in yet because at some point, some of the macroeconomics come down and affect the local level. And one of the things that I could definitely relate to is he had a chart and it showed office properties that were reappraised in 2023. Yeah and the value decline by age of the properties. So to your point, the K, right? The A's and B's might be declining, but not as rapidly and are gonna increase faster, you know, come back faster and the lower leg of the K, right. not so much. So pre-19, so I'm gonna go over the years. So pre-1950 buildings had an average total value loss of 60%. The build date from 1950 wow. to 1980, minus 55% average total value loss. Right. 1980 to 2056 and 2000 and on 52%. Now, again, this isn't local. This is on a national level. But the reason it rang with me is because we have a lot of office buildings that were built in the 50s to 80s, right? We have a lot of buildings in general that were built in the 50s and 80s. So those are probably the ones, and we've talked about it when we did our office episode, that, you know, some of those C quality, C and D quality office buildings are really ready, not even for a repurpose. Some may be for a repurpose, but others for ground up redevelopment. So I, that was one of my takeaways. What I love is in Lonnie's presentation, there was that macro to micro. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what's interesting is he speaks about all these trends nationally, but then he gets to South Florida and Miami, and we're bucking the trend right. in, in every way. And of course, you know, one of the things that I took from there, which has been part of the conversation, um, and it's an ongoing conversation, and it's going to be an ongoing conversation, is that where is the biggest uh, issue that everybody sees? And that is the skyrocketing cost of insurance. And definitely it's in the radar of every major financial institution, anyone who's going to, uh, you know, lend or invest in South Florida, it's going to be part of that conversation. Part of the, the conference, is also having these presentations that are asset class based. I wonder what did you get out of the uh, wonderful panel that was put together um, and moderated by Michelle uh, Gonzalez, which had Mr. Romero from JLL, and then of course the canvassing queen, right? Beth Azor. Beth Azor. Paul and, Dean. Yeah. Rod, yeah. And Rod Casting. That was a great panel, but I'm part, you know me, I'm partial to retail because it's yeah. where the fun happens. Uh -huh. um, it's the fun asset That's class. True. So what I loved seeing were, you know, he did overall rent growths or declines yeah. and overall retail across the country is yeah. doing fairly well. Um, the only place that saw a drop in rent growth was San Francisco and, well, too, San Francisco and Honolulu. San Francisco was minus 3% and Honolulu negative 2.4% in rent growth. And then Florida in general was really strong. Miami rent growth was 4.5%, so not too, too high, but given where we've been and how far we've come, that's still pretty high. And Orlando was 7.4% and Tampa was 8.3%. So I thought that was, that was super interesting because it put you know, kind of a picture over the sunshine states, which are or the smile states that they call them, you know, everything from Phoenix, Texas, Atlanta, Florida, et cetera, all extremely, extremely strong. I really enjoyed how in this presentation, there was almost like a call to action to 
focus a big portion of your of your space to local businesses support the local business make sure that they have a home uh, and make sure that they're part of the way that you curate the shopping center and how important those mom and pop oh for sure every single one of the people on that panel even if they do do big box retail and you know end cap retail with the bigger companies they all said mom and pops mom and pops which we love because (laughs) we believe they are the lifeblood of the community and every everybody on the panel said that and that they always make sure that they're a big part of who they bring in i also thought the focus as always we've been seeing it we saw it before the pandemic and then there was kind of a break you know with everything closing during the pandemic but the experiential real estate and how before you know Rafael said and everybody agreed you know when he first started out if you had um, a shopping center you know you always had the same five people right you had your grocery anchor you had your nail salon yeah you had a quick delivery pizza a, a Asian fast food Chinese restaurant and an insurance company And he said, and you rarely wanted restaurant other than those two fast foods. And he says now, yeah, you still want the grocery and you probably still have the nail salon. But now you have a lot more medical uses and a lot more restaurants. And and he said, and it's the quality of the restaurants. It's not just the fast food pizza delivery people. It is Michelin star chefs um, yeah. are happy being. And, and, and some were happy to say locally grown. Yes, yes. Michelin star yes, chefs. Yes, yes. I, I also, to go along with that is the brick and mortar is where the profit are. Correct. Right? And the average size of the stores is below the 10 year average. Right. It's you know, we decreasing. keep shrinking, yeah. right? And making it more more efficient. And so that that was another, another component of that, especially when you have people in the stage that have 20 plus years of experience Right. So they can recall back when it was the big box stores, and then that was that was the focus. I, I also enjoyed. Um, we had Nathan Colgan uh, with Miami Dade County yeah. um, zoning. zoning and Planning Department, and. We also had one of the sponsors of the Live Local Act, Senator Alexis uh, Calatayud. And, you know, one of the things that I found interesting is that when we go to Tallahassee, we see how they, they're putting together these this Live Local Act. It's great for her to be there to, to uh, give face to why some of the discussions that were had about the impetus for, for the bill. But more importantly, how important it is for the proper implementation. And the reason why it was that is because we've had some zoning and planning departments throughout the state of Florida that are not, you know, necessarily enthused about the implementation, right? And so I love the uh, this idea of, you know, it's not just enough to pass the bill, but now the fact that you have to travel around and kind of promote it, promote it. Mm-hmm. and 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 really the effectiveness is in it's in its execution. So how important that part of it is, and so I'm I was very happy to 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 see them there and to really drive the point of how important it is for us to encourage the development of new additional units in order to address the affordable housing uh, crisis and that it's not about rent control but that it's more important to encourage that development and that growth and what was interesting was lonnie did state that that live local act was going to help florida immensely in yeah. ter- in a lot of ways in terms of offsetting some of the hurt that's coming down the road with um cmbs loans maturing across 
across asset classes, but also with the affordability issue. And Sebastian Juncadella, who did the section on industrial, also made the comment that one of the challenges for industrial owners and users here in Florida is that there has been an exodus of the middle class due to the increasing cost of living in Miami. And he felt that this is really going to help, especially with, you know, with warehouse workers and and everything else is it's going to help stabilize the middle class a bit. So I thought it was interesting that the Live Local Act, which is something that is so progressive from Florida's standpoint yeah. to try to do and override, working out the kinks to your point, trying not yeah. to step too much on local zoning boards, to, you know, That's right. toes, and yet also giving local politicians and zoning boards a little bit more breathing room against right. nimbyism, right? Which Correct. is part of the issue. Everybody wants right. affordable housing. Nobody wants it within five miles of them, right? right? So anyway, that was super interesting. And then just to go back to Sebastian, because he had one of my takeaways that I took away from there was that for every person that moves to Miami, you need 700, uh, sorry, 77 square feet of industrial to meet the demands. And that this has been most consistent. That's been a consistent number over time. And this is coming at a time when right now we've got the largest amount of um, inventory coming on the market. Right. Um, we have 11.2 million square feet under construction. That's the most ever delivered historically. That's going to be delivered in 2024. A total of 8 million square feet of that is unspoken for. So a very small percentage has, you know, leases. But what he also said that I thought was really interesting was that our historical absorption has been three and a half million. So even though we're delivering double our absorption rate, new starts are almost nil. Correct. So, yeah, we're going to have vacancy in the very high end right. uh, industrial, the larger spaces, yeah. but it's going to stabilize pretty quickly. Good shout out to Sebastian. It's always yeah. a very entertaining presentation. Yeah, so and much fun. He's, he's, he's <laughs> a lot of fun to listen to. And one of the things he says that is over the course of the last 24 months, and there's a very key metric uh, currently in our market, is that rent growth for industrial has gone up 40%. And based on the factors that you mentioned, the fact that there's not a lot of new construction starts it's the lowest that it has been in eight years he's saying basically that rent growth will slow down and as far as how much is appreciating but will continue to go up and so the prices and the cost of renting you know industrial warehousing is going to remain you know high. it's going to remain high elevated yeah. right yeah, yeah. It, it's going to remain stable to to the new realities right I love the dynamics of this. I, you learn so much. And one of the things that we always talk about, understanding the dynamics of each asset class, but even though we bifurcate it by asset class, it's a symbiotic relationship. And it's all driven. Any asset class is really driven by population growth, right? Which you might Correct. not think of that so yeah. much sometimes, right? But That's it's right. all driven by population. Yeah, that was another thing that was mentioned, that retail follows residential. So right. again, you know, you have that population growth. It affects industrial, it affects residential, it affects uh, retail. You know, that's why, you know, economic development agencies, you know, their their job is to bring, you know, you're bringing people here, you're bringing jobs here, you're bringing right. big companies here. Shout out to the Beacon yeah. Council for yeah. the job that they've been doing. Absolutely. And and yeah. Yeah, and Rod, Rod Miller, who's been doing a, a terrific job as, as, as heading the Beacon Council for sure. 
I think we're going to wrap this up. <laughs> Just because we've been throwing a lot, I know, of it's numbers. a lot of information. It's a lot of numbers yeah. and stats out there. But since November is the month of gratitude and we did a lot of name dropping, I did want to do a huge thank you and shout out to all of the people <coughs> who make these conferences possible and a success. I mean, I've been to some conferences that have been kind of a duds that, yeah, you take some stuff away, but you're really like, eh, I don't know if I'd go to that again next year. With both of these, I mean, I had complete FOMO over the C5, C missing the C5 CCIM conference, but I, you know, I was really glad that I did go to the Commercial Outlook conference. So I... I want to give a huge shout out to Johnny Noon and his entire team at NAR, right. to the whole CCIM team, because those guys, the volunteer leaders of CCIM, don't yep. have a staff and they do the work themselves. And for them to come on board and give it their all and really oh, take wow. this conference to the next level was a huge task. And, and I'm really grateful for that. And to all of the staff at NAR who put together all of the tours and coordinating guest speakers and really listening to their advisory team. I, sure. I really, really appreciate it. And then, of course, um, to the Miami Realtors Commercial Board and Danielle Blake, yeah. the VP of Commercial, Jennifer Forbes, the current president of Commercial. Um, pulling this off is huge. And to get the caliber speakers that they got at this conference towards the end of the conference circuit when most of these people have been in conferences right. since August, right, was was a huge pull and you guys did an amazing job. Absolutely, I completely agree. Is that your stat of the day? That was not my stat, that was my, my gratitude. <laughs> so as always, we end with a stat of the day. We're entering November by the time that this debuts and uh, but I, I did find some great data on Halloween that I wanted to share and this is actually from the National Retail Federation and so their expectation for 2023 once the numbers all come in is that the spending is expected to reach 12.2 billion dollars which is about $2 billion more than last year's number. And so I, I wanted to break this down for you. So that's $4.1 billion in costumes, $3.6 billion in candy, $3.9 billion in decorations, and about ah, half a billion in greeting cards. Half a billion dollars? Who is giving greeting cards for Halloween? I want to know. Half a billion realtors, dollars realtors. in greeting cards? Yeah. All right. Well, God bless them. My goodness. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised. I think in your home that there will be more candy than, more, more dark chocolate than costumes, right? Or no? No, I only buy candy I don't like because because if I have leftovers, oh, I don't want to eat it. <laughs> that is not good at all. I'm so sorry. I'm gonna have to figure this out, like Carlos. Carlos, kids please. Likes. We gotta, we gotta fix this. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> well, there are. I, I think the Halloween decorations are getting creepier and creepier. I went on a run the other day. You know, I run yeah. when it's still dark out. And I hear this noise, and it's oh this voice, and it's like, hello, it's kind of windy out here today, isn't it? And I'm like, who's talking? Who? Like, I'm looking around, I'm like, it's got to be one of these Halloween things, but I haven't run by one. 
And there is this, the scariest ghoul I've ever seen. But he was like, hello, look what the wind blew my way. So yeah, I'm avoiding that, um, that running path. Um, my market stat goes back to Sebastian. And um, because I think a lot of times when you throw out stuff about increased inventory or harder times in the market or stuff like that, that people think, oh, you know, vacancy rates are going to go up, prices are going to crash, you know, I'm going to be able to buy, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to buy because I'm going to wait, right? The famous last words. So he stated that the tenants, um, tenants market starts at about 8% vacancy rate, meaning, you know, a tenants market over a landlord's market starts at about 8% vacancy rate. And the highest rate expected as we go into all of this brand new inventory is only three and a half percent vacancy. At the worst, the worst, worst, worst time of the Great Recession, the lowest occupancy for industrial was 91%, 9% vacancy, right? So he's like, we're not going there. We're not right. going there. Um, so the, the dollars per square foot, going back to your point, is going um, up slowly, but it is gonna continue going up even though sales are gonna be down due to inventory. So thank you for joining us. I hope we didn't overwhelm you with numbers. If we did, go back and listen to it again so that you can pull <laughs> some information out um, that we got from the conferences. And until then, thank you for joining us. See you thank next you, everybody. Time. See you next time.